Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said, Rhetoric depends upon history. All questions that are susceptible to rhetorical treatment arise out of history, and it is to history that the rhetorician turns for his means of persuasion. Now simultaneous with the loss of historical consciousness, there emerges a conviction that man should dispense with persuasive speech and limit himself to mere communication. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is dialectic? What is rhetoric? What do dialectic and rhetoric have to do with one another? What have they to do with culture? Today we continue our Exploring Weaver series with the second half of our time discussing the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric and the cultural role of rhetoric. Let's dive in! Lacking such a theory, he of course cannot find a place for rhetoric, which is the most humanistic of all the disciplines. Rhetoric speaks to man in his whole being and out of his whole past and with reference to values which only a human being can intuit. I cannot resist rereading that. That's one of my favorite sentences in all of his essays. Rhetoric speaks to man in his whole being and out of his whole past and with reference to values which only a human being can intuit. The semanticists have in view only a denatured speech to suit a denatured man, men without chest, right? Mm -hmm. Theirs is a major intellectual error committed by supposing that they were going to help man by bringing language under the surveillance of science. There is never any question that rhetoric ultimately will survive this scientific attack. The pity is that the attack should ever have been made at all since proceeding from contempt for history and ignorance of the nature of man, they must produce confusion, skepticism, and inaction. In the restored man, dialectic and rhetoric will go along hand in hand as the regime of the human faculties intended that they should do. That is why the recovery of value and of community in our time calls for a restatement of the broadly cultural role of rhetoric. I just want to stand up and shout bravo. Yes. A lot of what he mentions in his conclusion is what motivates and underpins Wittenberg Academy's curriculum. Most certainly. And I can't help but think about the relationship of catechesis with the liberal arts as we ponder the relationship of dialectic and rhetoric. Yes. And this idea of you have the facts and then you need action, you know? So anyway, we don't have to go there, but as I was reading that kept coming to mind. Um, yes. And and in in Deuteronomy 6 where it talks about 
you know, teach these things to your children, you know, when you, when you lie down and when you rise up, when you walk along the way, all of these sorts of things that, that just seems to scream at us, this relationship between dialectic and rhetoric. Right. Because the catechism itself is dialectically organized, but it's got a fair bit of rhetoric in it. And it's designed not simply to provide young people with a dogmatic understanding of the theology of our faith. It's designed to help them embrace that faith, head and heart, dialectic and rhetoric. If we just presuppose our responsibility in terms of teaching them the logic of the faith, an overemphasis of a theological grasp from a rationalistic point of view isn't even consistent with Lutheranism, in my opinion. Why? Correct. Because we embrace the both ands. We have an element of analogical reasoning inherent in our faith because of the sacramental viewpoint. We believe that things that we understand and that we see speak to the truth of things that we cannot see and that we have to imagine and we have to engage memory through the imagination as well when we approach the altar, for example, in the Lord's Supper. So we've had that conversation before, but I think it's really important to bear all that in mind because we are serious conservative Christians. And serious conservative Christians are battling against relativism and social construction of knowledge. And if we're doing that by merely applauding, embracing, and emphasizing logic, we're going to fall into exactly what Weaver is talking about here. Yes. That's unhealthy. And there is, I have seen that tendency in the Lutheran homeschool movement. I think it's well-intentioned. I mean, it's a reaction against sloppy thinking across the board and actually devilish kinds of schools of thought, if you can call them that. But still, we ought not throw the rhetoric out with the bathwater. Yes, yes. Okay, here we go. Building on the cultural role of rhetoric, Weaver extends his critique of general semantics, a scientizing approach to language that would result in a sanitized or denatured speech for a denatured man. We just read that. In the process of extending that critique, Weaver explores how rhetoric, insofar as it concerns itself primarily with the movement of the soul toward the good, may be viewed as the intellectual love of God. I might add that this whole notion of rhetoric as the intellectual love of God was one of the fundamental reasons I wrote my Of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. And the, the primary chapter in that book is entitled The Intellectual Love of God. So this is where the impetus came for that. 
And quoting Weaver, so the reader's understanding of rhetoric increases as the critique of general semantics unfolds, and one's appreciation for Plato's Phaedrus is likewise enhanced. With these precepts in mind, we turn to that part of the Phaedrus which has proved most puzzling. Why is so much said about the absurd relationship of the lover and the non-lover? Socrates encounters Phaedrus outside the city wall. The latter has just come from hearing a discourse by Lysias, which enchanted him with its eloquence. He is prevailed upon to repeat this discourse, and the two seek out a shady spot on the banks of the Ulysses. Now, the discourse is remarkable because although it was, quote, in a way, a love speech, unquote, its argument was that people should grant favors to non-lovers rather than to lovers. Quote, this is just the clever thing about it, Phaedrus remarks. People are in the habit of preferring their lovers, but it is much more intelligent, as the argument of Lysias runs, to prefer a non-lover. Accordingly, the first major topic of the dialogue is a eulogy of the non-lover. The speech provides good subject matter for jesting on the part of Socrates and looks like another exhibition of the childlike ingeniousness which gives the Greeks their charm. Is it merely a piece of literary trifling? Rather, it is Plato's dramatistic presentation of a major thesis. Beneath the surface of repartee and mock seriousness, he is asking whether we ought to prefer a neuter form of speech to the kind which is ever getting us aroused over things and provoking an expense of the spirit. So he's saying that it is utterly about rhetoric. And if you read it with that in mind, it's very clear that that's, it talks about love, but it also talks about rhetoric and base rhetoric versus noble rhetoric. And then it's analogized to the lover. And in the midst of all of this, there's a beautiful, this is the part that I do assign still with my, in my college students, I always had them read the whole Phaedrus, but I don't think it's really age appropriate for uh, high schoolers. So I just have them read about the allegory of the charioteer, which is an allegory about how the soul develops and sprouts wings and such and then is born on this plane and it's really cool in a nutshell the chariot has a dark horse and a white horse and it circles in the high plane where the ideals live and every once in a while the charioteer can jump up and get a glimpse of those ideals and it forms the soul and the more he strives and hangs on, it's a rough, bumpy ride because the horses are fighting one another and all that. But eventually he gets a good view of those ideals. And then that's how the soul is formed prior to being born on this plane. And so that's kind of the basis of it. And it's really interesting allegory. It's Plato's account of character and virtue. And so love is discussed in this dialogue in terms of how the lover relates to the beloved and the the noble lover 
loves what he recognizes in the beloved in terms of beauty, truth, goodness, the ideals. You know, he, he, those pluck his heartstrings, so to speak, and that's the attraction between them. Does that make sense for you? Yes. Yes. That's that's my little synopsis of the allegory of the charioteer. Okay, so back to this sketch. So they have these speeches where they're praising the non-lover because he doesn't get all entangled with love. And love is presented as a sort of madness. Because, you know, we, we, t- we joke about love being blind and people do crazy things when they're in love. And that's kind of similar to what they were talking about. The speech provides good subject matter for jesting on the part of Socrates and looks like another exhibition of the childlike ingeniousness which gives the Greeks their charm. Is it merely a piece of literary trifling? Rather, it is Plato's dramatistic presentation of a major thesis. So the tripartite division, as I mentioned, is the base lover, and that's analogized to base rhetoric. The non-lover, which is the pure dialectician that we just spoke about in the previous essay, and the noble lover, or the, uh, uh, and that's analogized to noble rhetoric. The first is exploitative and is based on feeding one's personal appetites, so it's self-oriented. The second one is calculative. It tries to remain unattached. And the third one is beneficent. It has the good of the beloved in mind, the best interest of the beloved. Okay, so the general semanticists work in because Weaver's always trying to do cultural critique because he wants to be a watchman on the wall of Western society. He wants people to understand that although these people are very popular in academia today, what they're talking about in terms of purifying language of all of these elements that sully perfect communication, they're actually going to create a denuded speech for denuded human beings. So the implication is we are formed by our language and we will be formed into very similarly to the way we're formed by virtue of the ideas that we embrace about humanity Darwinism, wink, wink, that that equates us with animals. So in similar fashion, if we embrace the idea of the general semanticist, human beings will be denuded. And that's partly what you get from this pure dialectic. It advances an image of man that is corrupted. Okay, so Socrates gets wrapped up in this whole Uh, fun, and he gives a speech extolling base love, uh, and then he realizes, and he concludes it by saying, as wolves love lambs, so lovers love their loves. Wow. Socrates says this? Yes. And then he immediately feels convicted. He feels that he has committed an impiety against love, and then he gives a more positive celebration of noble love. And that's where the allegory of the charioteer comes in.
So then the grand analog begins. Here we go. Here it becomes necessary, according to Weber, to bring out concepts together and to think of all speech having persuasive power as a kind of love. Thus, rhetorical speech is madness to the extent that it departs from the line which mere sanity lays down. Now, rhetoric, as we have discussed it, in relation to the lovers, consists of truth plus its artful presentation. And for this reason, it becomes necessary to say something more about the natural order of dialectic and rhetoric. In any general characterization, rhetoric will include dialectic, but for the study of method, it is necessary to separate the two. That's an interesting way to think about how you have to parse out notions in order to clearly understand then how they work together. Dialectic is a method of investigation whose object is the establishment of truth about doubtful propositions. Aristotle in the topics gives a concise statement of its nature. A dialectical problem is a subject of inquiry that contributes either to choice or avoidance or to truth and knowledge, and that either by itself or as a help to the solution of some other such problem. It must, moreover, be something on which either people hold no opinion either way, or the masses hold a contrary opinion to the philosophers, or the philosophers to the masses, or each of them among themselves. So, in issues where people uh, hold differing opinions, dialectic is a process that helps one exercise good judgment. Okay, that's a way to think about it. So it's related also to jur jurisprudential knowledge and practical wisdom. In one passage, Plato contrasts positive terms, iron and silver, with the dialectical terms, justice and goodness. Yet in other passages, his dialectical terms seem to include categorizations of the external world. Thus, Socrates indicates that distinguishing the horse from the ass is a dialectical operation. And he tells us later that a good dialectician is able to divide things by classes where the natural joints are and will avoid breaking any part after the manner of a bad carver or a, bad, a clumsy butcher is the, the reading that I really enjoy. So, in other words, dialectic also has an element. When you think systematically according to the pattern of dialectic, you parse out the terms. You define terms strategically and correctly and logically, and then you look for the divisions of the topic that would be analogous to the joints in a chicken. When you're hacking a chicken to pieces, you're... Uh, uh, clumsy butcher, but when you recognize the divisions, you divide it cleanly at those joints, right? So he's saying a dialectician is very surgical about he how he parses out these propositions, and that's helpful, and dialectic is important because it helps you very methodically understand the bases of the argument that is debatable. So you proceed with rigor, right? You have to have a rigor, especially where opinions are divided. Aristotle talks about this at the very beginning of the rhetoric. It's especially important where opinions are divided, that you have this kind of rigor at least. In logic, in formal logic, the rigor is a product of 
the internal consistency, universalizability, and all of the forms, the mathematical forms of the reasoning process, right? In practical matters, in questions that are open to debate, the rigor is derived from dialectical methodology. Okay, which is kind of fun if you think about it. It's a rigorous way of approaching messy problems. But there is a branch of dialectic which contributes to choice or avoidance, so the practical wisdom. And it is with this that rhetoric is regularly found joined. Generally speaking, this is a rhetoric involving questions of policy, and the dialectic which precedes it will determine not the application of positive terms, but that of terms which are subject to the contingency of evaluation. Okay, so right and wrong good and bad, and so forth. Not just determining genus and species and that kind of precision, but uh, what elements of this argument belong together and how do we view them with relation to the ultimate good. Okay. Moving on. Any piece of persuasion, therefore, will contain as its first process a dialectic establishing terms which have to do with policy. Now, a term of policy is essentially a term of motion. And here begins the congruence of rhetoric with the soul, which underlies the speculation of the Phaedrus. In his myth of the charioteer, Socrates declares that every soul is immortal because that which is ever moving is immortal. Okay, now motion. We're talking about the, the principle of internal movement, volition, choice making. Are you with me? Yes. Motion, it would appear from his definition, is part of the soul's essence. Now, you can Christianize this all day long. And when I started teaching 7th and 8th graders this stuff in a classical Lutheran school, I went beyond Christianizing my understanding of rhetoric and ended up with a very Lutheranized understanding of it. It's so consistent. Traditional rhetorical theory, friends, I want you to realize, is a lost art these days, but it's very, very consistent, both with a Lutheran point of view, and it's not only consistent with, it's vital to civil society, free society. I am not exaggerating. Motion, it would appear from his definition, is part of the soul's essence. But terms of tendency, goodness, justice, divinity, and the like, are terms of motion and therefore may be said to comport with the soul's essence. How is that so? Goodness, well, if we make an argument about goodness... It will take us closer to the ultimate good, God, or it will take us away from. And that motion toward God or away from God is the motion he speaks of. The soul's perception of goodness, justice, and divinity will depend upon its proper tendency, while at the same time contacts with these in discourse confirm and direct that tendency. So the well-ordered soul 
tends in the right direction. It is bent to we're we're discussing we're discussing C.S. Lewis, right? Space trilogy. Right. I love the way C.S. Lewis all throughout the space trilogy uses the term bent to describe bent eldils, fallen angels. They are their souls are not well, they don't have souls, but the souls of people who follow that path are bent because their tendency has been warped. They are bent because their tendency has been warped. Right education forms the tendency of the soul so that it is aligned toward the good. Amoris ordo. By this conception, a soul that is rightly affected calls that good which is good, but a soul which is wrongly turned calls that good which is evil. What Plato has prepared us to see is that the virtuous rhetorician, who is a lover of truth, has a soul of such movement that its dialectical perceptions are consonant with those of a divine mind. Or, in the language of more technical philosophy, this soul is aware of axiological systems which have ontic status. Axiology has to do with the ordering of the goods, and (coughs) ontic status means they're not just ideals, they actually exist. They have ontic status, as in ontology. The good soul, consequently, will not urge a perversion of justice as justice in order to impose upon the commonwealth. Insofar as the soul has its impulse in the right direction, its definitions will agree with the true nature of intelligible things. There is, then, no true rhetoric without dialectic. For the dialectic provides the basis of high speculation about nature, without which rhetoric in the narrower sense has nothing to work upon. Yet, when the disputed terms have been established, we are at the limit of dialectic. How does the noble rhetorician proceed from this point on? That the clearest demonstration in terms of logical inclusion and exclusion often fails to win assent, we hardly need state. Therefore, to what does the rhetorician resort at this critical passage? It is the stage at which he passes from the logical to the analogical, or it is where figuration comes into rhetoric. Figuration is the word I was searching for earlier when I said how important all this is to a Lutheran worldview. When you hold a sacramental faith worldview, Analogical thinking and figuration are vital. And if you're not schooled in that, you don't have ears to hear that kind of truth. That is the, when I said I've Lutheranized my understanding of rhetoric, that is the most Lutheran statement I make at present about where all this leads. And in essence, I'm saying, without classical liberal arts education, our children can't really embrace the faith that we believe, teach, and confess, because it's a particular kind of faith worldview. And the Western tradition taught all of the elements that are vital in order to pass on that tradition, 
And if they're not educated that way, it's not going to stick. Yes, absolutely. And we've talked about this before, but it's not just the what, it's the how. You know, it's not just what you teach, it's how you teach it. If you want Lutherans, you have to teach them Lutheranly. Absolutely. Spot on. That's why pedagogy is so important. A number of people that I've seen over the years who wanted to bless their pea-picking hearts, they wanted to bolster classical Lutheran education, but they perceived of it as a matter of content primarily. That if you just have kids talk about the right ideas and read the right books and drill that into them and catechize them properly, then they'll be grounded. And of course you have to have the right content, but the pedagogy, the how of the teaching matters an awful lot. And that's what we were just talking about. Yes. Moving on. The objection sometimes made that rhetoric cannot be used by a lover of truth because it indulges in exaggerations can be answered as follows. There is an exaggeration which is mere wantonness, and with this the true rhetorician has nothing to do. Such exaggeration is purely impressionistic in aim. Like caricature, whose only object is to amuse, it seizes upon any trait or aspect which could produce titillation and exploits this without conscience. If all rhetoric were like this, we should have to grant that rhetoricians are persons of very low responsibility and their art a disreputable one. But the rhetorician we have just defined is not interested in sensationalism. Amen. Amen. This interest in actualization is a further distinction between pure dialectic and rhetoric. With its forecast of the actual possibility, rhetoric passes from mere scientific demonstration of an idea to its relation to prudential conduct. Anyone that's taken classes from me realizes that phronesis, prudential conduct, prudence, is of primary interest in my whole, well, actually what I teach when I'm teaching adults is how to operate within a group context, like a, a Winkle meeting or a medical ethics committee meeting, and how to give practical advice about what is the right thing to do, where the right thing is debatable, and all along the way, using principles where principles apply, using legal precedents where legal precedence is important, utilizing opinion profitably and with intellectual integrity all rely on phronesis for their proper function. So when he talks about um, the relation to prudential conduct here, it's very important. A dialectic must take place in vacuo because it's an abstract thing. And the fact alone that it contains contraries leaves it an intellectual thing. Rhetoric, on the other hand, always espouses one of the contraries. This espousal is followed by some attempt at impingement upon actuality. If we choose this 
route. These are likely to be the outcomes, and this is good. We ought to pursue this policy over that policy. That policy is going to lead to some bad outcomes, right? That kind of dialogue. It is more complete on the premise that man is a creature of passion who must live out that passion in the world. Pure contemplation does not suffice for this end. As Jacques Maritain has expressed it, love is not directed at possibilities or pure essences. It is directed at what exists. One does not love possibilities. One loves that which exists or is destined to exist. The complete man, then, is the lover added to the scientist, the rhetorician, and the dialectician. So you can see now very clearly, right? You asked me a while ago, is, he's not uh, denigrating dialectic altogether, is he? No, not at all. But he is trying to put dialectic in his place for good reason. Understanding followed by actualization seems to be the order of creation, and there is no need for the role of rhetoric to be misconceived. The pure dialectician is left in the theoretical position of the non-lover, who can attain understanding but who cannot add impulse to truth. We are compelled to say theoretical position because it is by no means certain that in the world of actual speech, the non-lover has more than a putative existence. In other words, I'm not sure there's even such a thing as a non-lover, but if there was, Socrates would be one. We have seen previously that his speech would consist of strictly referential words, which would serve only as designate. Now the question arises, at what point is motive to come into such language? Kenneth Burke, in A Grammar of Motives, has pointed to, quote, the pattern of embarrassment behind the contemporary ideal of a language that will best promote good action by entirely eliminating the element of extortion or command. Insofar as such a project succeeded, its terms would involve the narrowing of circumference to a point where the principle of personal action is eliminated for language, so that an act would follow from it only as a non sequitur, a kind of humanitarian afterthought. The fault of this conception of language is that scientific intention turns out to be enclosed in artistic intention and not vice versa. Let us test this by taking as example one of those fact-finding committees so favored by modern representative government. Many of the problems will have to be handled of modern society and the attempt to scientize language. Many of those problems will have to be handled, as Socrates well knew, by the student of souls. We are students of souls who must primarily make use of the language of tendency. The soul is impulse, not simply cognition. And finally, one's interest in rhetoric depends on how much poignancy one senses in existence. That impinges on vocation quite heavily. We live out our existence in our vocations. In the place God has stationed us, in the realms he has equipped us to actively engage others and serve our neighbors. So, building to the crescendo here. 
rhetoric moves the soul with a movement which cannot finally be justified logically. It can only be valued analogically with reference to some supreme image. Therefore, when the rhetorician encounters some soul sinking beneath the double load of forgetfulness and vice, he seeks to reanimate it by holding up to its sight the order of presumptive goods. I might add, this is indistinguishable from speaking the truth in love to my neighbor. What he's saying right here. This order is necessarily a hierarchy leading up to the ultimate good. All of the terms in a rhetorical vocabulary are like links in a chain stretching up to some master link, which transmits its influence down through the linkages. It is impossible to talk about rhetoric as effective expression without having as a term giving intelligibility to the whole discourse, the good. Of course, inferior concepts of the good may be and often are placed in this ultimate position, and there is nothing to keep a base lover from inverting the order and saying, evil be thou my good. Yet the fact remains that in any piece of rhetorical discourse, one rhetorical term overcomes another rhetorical term only by being nearer to the term which stands ultimate. So the movement of the soul toward the good is up this axiological chain. There's some ground for calling a rhetorical education necessarily an aristocratic education in that the rhetorician has to deal with an aristocracy of notions to say nothing of supplementing his logical and pathetic proofs with an ethical proof. Since we want not emancipation from impulse, but clarification of impulse or ordering of impulses, as we discussed earlier, the duty of rhetoric is to bring together action and understanding into a whole that is greater than scientific perception. The realization that just as no action is really indifferent, so no utterance is without its responsibility introduces, it is true, a certain strenuosity into life produced by a consciousness that nothing is lost. Yet this is preferable to that desolation of feeling of unaccountability. Even so, the choice between them is hardly ours to make. We did not create the order of things, but being accountable for our impulses, we wish these to be just. Thus, when we finally divest rhetoric of all the notions of artifice which have grown up around it, we are left with something very much like Spinoza's intellectual love of God. This is his essence and the fons et origo of its power. It is intellectual because, as we have previously seen, there is no honest rhetoric without a preceding dialectic. The kind of rhetoric which is justly condemned is utterance in support of a position before that position has been adjudicated with reference to the whole universe of discourse. And of such, the world always produces more than enough. It is love because it is something in addition to bare theological truth. That element, in addition, is a desire to bring truth into a kind of existence or to give it an actuality to which theory is indifferent. Rhetoric appears finally as a means by which the impulse of the soul to be ever moving is redeemed. 
may be granted that in this essay we have gone some distance from the banks of the Ilyssus. What began as a simple account of passion becomes by transcendence an allegory of all speech. No one would think of suggesting that Plato had in mind every application which has been here made, but that need not arise as an issue. The structure of the dialogue, the way in which the judgments about speech concenter, and especially the close association of the true, the beautiful, and the good constitute a unity of implication. Boy, does it. Wow. There's so many threads that come together in these two essays. The central idea is that all speech, which is the means the gods have given men to express his soul, is a form of eros in the proper interpretation of the word. With that truth, the rhetorician will always be brought face to face as soon as he ventures beyond consideration of mere artifice and device. That closing line says a lot in terms of, yes, rhetoric can be viewed merely as window dressing for what logic secures. But as he says, once you get beyond mere artifice and device, beyond mere figures of speech and rhetorical devices, you start to realize the depth of the beauty of rhetorical theory and rhetorical studies. And having said all that, this will pass away. This is knowledge that is good for this world. It's good for the life of the world. It is good and right and salutary when applied to understanding Pauline epistles, for example, and when understanding Jesus' parables. It does help in that regard. But most of what we talked about in these essays has to do with the life of the world. And that's significant, but it's not eternal. That last section that you read brought to mind John 3.16. For God Good. so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, God sent his son into the world. God sent the word, Jesus being the word, into the world. Not to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. Yeah. That just struck me as you were as you were reading that last part. The central idea is that all speech, which is the means the gods have given men to express his soul, is a form of eros, is a form of love in the proper interpretation of the word. When someone says, that really moved my soul, that's, that's eros in the proper sense. It moves you to want to embrace that good, that true, and that beautiful and yes, Jesus came as a Hebrew, speaking Aramaic, into an actual place in space and time. And he came to show us the Father's love, and his love took him to the cross, where he gave all. And understanding rhetoric in relation to 
that intellectual love of God is really influenced heavily by John 3.16. You're absolutely right. In our next episode, we are going to take up the importance of cultural freedom and the image of culture. Yes. We're going to transition. We have a very nice progression that I think we've been tracking through very well, very systematically from distinction and hierarchy through the cultural role of rhetoric and dialectic and rhetoric. And now the focus will be on culture per se. And then we'll conclude with being doctors of culture, what it means to be a doctor of culture. And that's important because there are a lot of societal ills that need to be addressed and healed. And that came into play with the second episode of this of this uh, series of podcasts when you celebrated the student orations and you interviewed the students. That was the theme. So with that, we still have a lot to look forward to in terms of our look at rhetoric and our look at the writings of Richard M. Weaver and how they still most certainly speak to us today and help us, to a certain extent, wade through these times of confusion and disorder as we attempt to achieve order this side of heaven as best we can as we are given. Well said. We pray that God will give us grace to lead peaceable and orderly lives. And so much of what Weaver contemplated and wrote about had to do with preserving orderly society and civil society. And that's why it's so rich and that's why it's so relevant today. And I don't feel a need to apologize to you about this, Jocelyn, but for the listeners, I really had no, I should say we had no intention of just essentially doing an audio book of several of Weaver's essays, but we're compelled to read so many passages because they're just that rich. And I hope it motivates people to go and read the whole series that they can find um, in his various books and on the rhetoric ring uh, Weaver's top 10 list. Certainly. Thank you, Dr. Tolman. It has been fantastic as usual. And I look forward to our next episode. These aren't the only things Mrs. Benson and I discuss, but they're certainly the best. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.